Matters of Mortology, a novella, written and read by T.M. Camp. Chapter 17 Epigraph Suspicions amongst thoughts are like bats amongst birds. They ever fly by twilight. And that is from Of Suspicion by Sir Francis Bacon. Though my eyes were blind with fear, my frantic feet fell sure on the familiar, well-worn path. I thought of my sister's voice from the night before, a whisper floating down from her window, a whisper, an invocation, a call to love from love. I thought of her hand writing the words, Brother, he is my life and my soul. I heard Burke, his voice low and cautious, naming monsters. Nosferatu, Wampir, Dracul. My sister's note in my hand. I have met a man. Hampton and the others in the village, chafing over a boy with bad blood, buried in their holy dirt. Why would someone bury a child so far from their own land? I heard the fruit rattling on the gate, pecked dry by the birds. I saw withered flowers at every grave, and Ceres Ling sitting in her ruined garden, telling of the birth of monsters. The boy's uncle, his voice gnawing at the edges of my mind. Open the grave, release whatever evil might be resting there. I saw the bowl of eggs and the weasel at work. I wondered over the ninth regret. Burke's voice again. These stories, they may be true. I saw poor Mason, pale and drained on the slab. The desecrated grave. The shadow that followed me through the fields. His song calling my sister's name. I heard the lonely bird calling across the fields. I heard his voice. I had intended to visit Miranda sometime later this evening, sir. I saw how pale my twin looked, dancing with a monster amongst the graves. Nosferatu, Wampir, Dracul. And, as I ran, I prayed. Chapter 18 Epigraph I can heal these father's wounds. Your family has fed no grave. All your people are alive. And that is from Sweeney Astray by Seamus Haney. I faced the two of them there in the graveyard. She was in his arms, and at my approach she turned her face towards me. I saw nothing familiar in her eyes, those eyes I had not seen but in dreams for so many years. Nothing familiar remained, only dead madness. I threw myself at them, driving the two of them apart. Her insane eyes met my own, her face contorted 
drooling rage, her skin very pale, her throat torn across one side. There was little blood, and the flesh looked very cold. Nothing familiar. Sister, leave this place. You have been ensnared by a monster, and a monster you have become. She made as if she might lunge for me, but I held her at bay with the strength of my voice and my love. Sister, leave this thing. Forsake this creature. There is nothing but death for you here. She fell to her knees and wept hotly, but either in rage or sorrow I could not know. She looked up, those ruined eyes scraped against mine, her voice rising from that savage throat. I love him, she whispered. My tears matched her own. Sister, there is nothing in him but death. Give him over. Give him back to the shadow. She howled, throwing her head back and exposing that torn throat. The gaping second ma turned in protest and torment to the stars. She rose hands clawing at the air between us, and again came that whisper from her dreadful double mouth. Then I stay, daughter and sister of death. I stay to be lover and bride of death as well. Death shall be denied me no longer. I could not help but scream at her. In the name of our family, of our father and the blood we share, leave this place. She stared, insane and uncomprehending. In the name of God, Miranda, go. I flung my words at her and she, wilting from them, fled back into the shadows and toward the manor. He was young this monster I turned to face after she had gone, young and very small, and full of life, far more so than when his mother and uncle had brought him to me for burial. He'd stayed silent up until now, but he smiled at me as my sister fled, his lips smeared with blood, her blood very dark against his pale skin. He laughed, driving me backward with the sheer force of his voice, and I knew full well that true evil was here before me. His voice, so rich and deep it spanned lifetimes, yet from the mouth of a youth barely in his teens, it was an abomination, a profane and vile thing, a disgusting mock against God and creation. The boy... The monster moved in. I am not of your land nor of your blood, Undertaker. Your weak words have no authority over me. I staggered backwards as if that obscene voice pushed against me. The creature laughed, chanting, Nosferatu, Wampir, Dracul. Each word drove me back further and I fell against a gravestone. Know the face of what you fear. I am the monster, the demon and the dragon, 
a child of Lilith and a son of hell. Your petty line-walking God has bound me in this flesh for all eternity, damned me beyond the reach of life or death. Cold hands against my throat, a child's hands lifted my face to his. Look upon me, cousin. Watch me feed. His head swayed with a serpent syncopation, his eyes hooked deep into mine, wicked, aged things, dark jewels set in that rotting mask of flesh, the rank air spilled out of his open mouth, all dirt and rot. God, I managed to gasp, deliver your servant from this unholy thing. The creature blanched and shrank back at the mention of the Lord, eyes rolling in fear and clutching his head. I felt a glimmer of hope and made as if to rise. Chuckling, the monster grinned. It had been mocking me, I realized in despair. Your God is not here, brother-in-law. You are alone. Rising up over me like a wave, the monster threw me back against the gravestone once more. I struck my temple as I fell. The world stuttered in and out of blackness. Through that storm, those terrible eyes moved in once more. I clawed at the stone, my hands seizing upon a mourning wreath hanging there. Galvanized in my panic, I crushed the pale flowers in my fists. A pungent, faintly warm scent rose up, and I felt some of my strength return. Moly flowers, unwilted, sorcerer's garlic, Burke had told me, was one of the few weapons we had against the shadow kind. The monster faltered, his face twisting in revulsion as the scent spread toward him. Pink bile spilled from that awful gape, splattering across my hands and arms as I thrust the pungent buds forward to drive the creature back. No pantomime mock of victory now. His howl of rage and pain was genuine as I pressed him on backwards through the graveyard. Though he tried to hold his ground once or twice, snarling, the moly overpowered him, and he retreated once more. Soon he realized our destination, discovering that I'd been driving him back towards his own grave. The monster laughed, saying, you think you can cage me once more? That petty weed will wither soon enough. There's more than flowers, I told him. He grinned. Do your worst. Bury me again and go home to sit and wait for me to come and drain your life. I, strong with God, replied through clenched teeth. You shall never drink of my blood, monster. His smile grew sharper. Oh no, not I. No, your own sister shall feed on you, brother-in-law. She will draw your soul into the shadow, not I. She is mine now, mine for good. She has my mark upon her. I have drunk of her, and she of me. He spat at me, laughing. No petty flower can draw her back.
I did not falter, but I must confess I felt fear at his words. I was so ignorant of his kind and their ways. But it was no matter. I had to fulfill the task that God had given me, regardless of the outcome. Perhaps, once it was all over, Burke would have some ideas on how I could help cure Miranda of this. I pressed forward. Behind him, the monster's grave loomed dark against the night, the ground gaping open. The creature, perhaps in desperation, howled at me one last time before it spun and fled, diving straight into the open grave waiting for it. I heard a gruesome scraping from the pit, and, approaching cautiously, I peeked over the edge in time to see the lid of the coffin clamp down in place. I could hear him in there, laughing back up at me in triumph. But I could not help but smile with some small triumph of my own. The monster thought I could not bottle him for long, but he'd not counted on Burke's diligent instruction. Breaking the wreath in my hands, I laid the flowers, their odors still quite strong, around the rim of the grave, before I retreated to Mason's shack. Inside, I cleaned my hands and face of the monster's vile stink, washing away that horrible bile. Facing the mirror, I stared thoughtfully into my own eyes, before I drew back my fist and shattered my reflection. Filling my pockets with the broken shards, I took up a shovel and left the shack. When I returned, the flowers around the grave were undisturbed. The monster was contained. I dug at the edges with my shovel, widening the grave. It was long, difficult work, and I paused often to rest, my hands and shoulders singing with the effort of it. Soon the hole had spread out into a smooth, round hollow in the earth. It was a grave no longer, a small cup in which I hoped to catch the dawn. My labor finished, I threw the shovel aside and sat down with my back against the casket to wait. The scent of moly spreading over me, warm and peaceful. I looked up at the manor, dark against the stars. I wondered if the dead resented the presence of the house looming over them, or if it was a comfort. Perhaps they did not care at all. One window, my sister's, shone brightly, like a lighthouse in the darkening storm. I thought of her there, pacing the floors, mourning her lover. I tried to put my thoughts together to find the words that I could say to her once the dawn had come and my duties here were finished. God is kind. He forgives those who, in childlike innocence, stray outside the boundaries. My sister was no rebel. Perhaps, with Burke's help, I could in time find a remedy for her afflictions, those romantic and spiritual, and draw her back from where she had strayed too close to the borderlands of life. She might never forgive me, I knew, but I could try. The chill fingers of night pressed into my bones, tugging me away into a shallow sleep. 
I watched her window, waiting for the dawn to come. Once I had scraped this abomination from the earth, I told myself, I would help her however I could. She might never forgive me, but she would be safe. Chapter 19 Epigraph Après tout le duel, on rêve. And that is from the private journals of Michel Robert Gaines. I dreamt I was an actor on the stage. I dreamt I was dead. I dreamt of pen and ink of words flowing across the page, of the dark blood of books. I dreamt of withered fruit strung from the rafters of my library, rattling faintly in the breeze. These dreams and more came to me that night, my mind a shattered mirror seething with visions. I dreamt of my house, the roof caved in, and of a solitary pale figure that traced wandering paths in hollow footsteps across the warped and dusty floors. These dreams and more did I see. This and more was shown to me before I woke. Chapter 20 Epigraph None of the rites matter. The dead go their way, whether we pray or no. And that is from Lazarus, The Reluctant Resurrection, by Walter Martin Lincoln. The morning sun rose like a forgotten friend, suddenly remembered and welcome. I stretched, letting those thin early rays reach my stiff complaining muscles, it would be some time before I was warm. No matter. I had time to wait while the light played against the carved ivory of the casket. I imagined the air inside growing warmer by the second as it soaked up the heat of dawn. I thought of my sister's monstrous lover within, twisting against the hot, unseen hand that reached in to stifle him. It was a small cruelty, and I am not too ashamed to say that I savored it, as welcome as the sunlight after my long watch in the chill night. From a nearby grave, I took up another wreath of moly and crushed the aromatic blossoms and leaves against the pale lid of the coffin, staining it with their juice. Turning out my pockets, I scattered the bright shards of Mason's mirror in a wide circle around the casket and over it, the broken fragments catching the early light of the sun. It was beautiful, I had to admit, no matter what crouched suffering within. The sun cleared the mountains, stretching its long fingers across the fields, fanning life and warmth into this dead gray land. I took up my shovel and raised it over the coffin, waiting for the dawn to reach me. A prayer on my lips, I brought down the shovel and shattered the lid of the casket, 
and stood back to watch what followed. Sunlight, Burke had told me, and under that light, a flower of rage and pain blossomed out of the open casket. I smiled, grim and savoring the destruction. From out of the grave rose a dark and vicious mass to burst against the sky. Twisting shadows of scorched meat and bone flailed, skewered on the morning rays of the sun. The shards of mirror I'd scattered around the coffin caught the dawn and threw it back in the face of that horrible mass, carving the life away from this child of hazard. A great agonized howl rang out, the voice of evil echoing through the eternity it had been denied. A satisfying sight, watching it tumble back into the casket, blackened and splintered beyond repair. A feeble hiss rose up from the mess, and the bones rattled away before, finally, falling silent. Rest in peace. And I would have pronounced more and more damning litanies over that ruin, but my voice failed me at the end, for... In the casket, staring back up at me with hollow sockets, not one, but two greasy blackened skulls grinned at me. Two skulls. And, as I am trained in the artful language of bones, in a glance I saw that one was male, and the other, female. Two skeletons, mingled, male and female, unmade by my hand. I turned away, looking back up to the manor looming over the yard, to the window that stood open to the sun, knowing now that the single staring eye was blind and had been so all night. No, my sister did not wait above, but rather she lay here before me now, intertwined in the arms of her lover abandoned to hazard and damnation, lost to me forever. Chapter 21 Epigraph And every woe a tear can claim except an erring sister's shame. And that is from The Jiao by George Gordon Knoll. I scattered their bones across the hollow place I'd made around the grave, intermingling the scorched ivory with shards of mirror and wilted garlic blossoms. I shattered their skulls, brutal as it may seem. I do not know what I felt, frustration or necessity. I cannot say now. And then I went home. It was days before I dared venture into the upper halls and rooms so long closed to me. They opened themselves, revealing to me secrets of my sister's life which I could not have even guessed. She too apparently had her own passion for books. I found one room stacked nearly to the rafters with them, most of them romances in the popular, common vein. Pastes, Burke would have called them with a sneer even as he sold them to her. 
She must have been so lonely. I could not help but retreat from this pathetic discovery. With nowhere to go, I wandered the manor until I finally came to rest in my own library once more. As the gloaming filled my windows, I took up one of the books Burke had given me, one of Ceres Ling's banned beautiful novels. So gentle, I turned those thin paper pages, the strange foreign characters flitting under my fingers like a flight of birds scattered across a winter sky. The slender volume fell open to an illustration, an elegant representation of a dragon-faced infant suckling at his mother's breast. The child's thin hand twisted in her hair, her head pulled back and throat taut, mouth gaping in horror. Very lifelike. Familiar. That evening, on Flames of Moly, I laid the pages of Ceres Ling's rarest masterpiece, watching them blacken and burn, one by one. Once they had cooled, I crushed the fragile gray embers between my fingers, and I wept. That night I dreamt I was wandering through the village, abandoned. Every home stood open, every life within nothing more than a hollow husk drained by the monster's appetites. Men and women, all the children, none had been spared. Alone, I tended to them, and, all alone, I laid them to rest. I felt nothing. It was no matter, no great concern. I was going to perform this duty for them all, sooner or later. My long labor complete, I retired to my manor and waited, wondering what would come first, the dawn or the first faint stirrings down in the graveyard below. Since then, since that night, I have not dreamed. These long years past, now I take to my bed only when I cannot stand the silence any longer, and I wait. Eventually sleep comes for me, and I let myself drift, grateful, across a still pool of dreamless, shallow water. Chapter 22 Epigraph Hoc sustinete, maius ne veniat malum, and that is from the fables of Phaedrus. The house of Ceres Ling stood long rotting in the fields. Inside, the tapestries gathered dust while porcelain faces faded and crumbled beneath the slow, insistent tread of time. Only a blackened patch of earth remains where her garden once thrived. Eventually, even the house fell. In the village, the people nod their heads and whisper their pious judgments on me, even as they rely on my services. Long years have passed, and the dark gossip has made me a celebrity of sorts. They fear me now more than ever. Among them 
Only Burke knows how close to the gates the children of Hazard have prowled. Only he knows who spared them. Yet he keeps his peace and continues to buy their lives from them, a thinning harvest year to year. And if the great god Terminus walks the boundaries, I cannot say. Within, in our ignorance, we do his work as best we can, whether he does or not. The manor is mine now, complete and alone. Only my footfalls echo as I wander the night. Outside, no strange cries ring out across the fields. And flowers no longer wither prematurely in the graveyard below. You have been listening to Matters of Mortology by T.M. Camp, written and read by the author, with music composed by Devin Anderson. To find out more about my writing, visit my website at tmcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Panic jerked me like a galvanic charge, and I crushed the pale plow. Pl- 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 <laughs> and here I was doing so well. <laughs>